This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook, and today is January 3rd, 2024. Please tell us your name and the years you were associated with Hofstra University. Hello, Brian. Uh, My name is Michael DeLuise, and I was at Hofstra working in public relations and some other areas from 1986 to 2003. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, your name is familiar uh, to many of us, and I'm sure there's a lot of uh, students and administrators you remember working with, and your name has come up with a, a few more than a few times in these interviews. So uh, I'm really grateful that you took the time uh, to talk with us. If we could go back uh, before the beginning of your time at Hofstra Radio, uh, was your career always in public relations, or what were you doing before you became you came to Hofstra? When I graduated college, uh, I had originally thought I was going to be a marriage counselor. And even before that, I had actually, uh, I was three years in a Catholic seminary thinking I'd be a priest. And my intention was to be either a marriage counselor or a social worker. And when I went to NYU, in my junior year, I took, I guess, a part-time job. In those days, they didn't really have internships with an advertising agency that did marketing for theater. And they took me into staying on after I graduated. And my first client was the New York Philharmonic. Uh, And I worked with the Joffrey Ballet, um, the American Museum of Natural History. And they gave me all the clients that the older guys didn't want to work on, which were all the off-Broadway shows. And those producers ended up becoming the producers of shows that I ended up working on later, uh, plays like Annie, and uh, I actually worked on the original production of Hair. So uh, entertainment was what I started in my career. I worked with a lot of the New York Philharmonic, as I said, and then I uh, worked with uh, people like Stevie Wonder, Tony Bennett. And then in the mid-'80s, Oh, I had a client who decided not to pay us a lot of money. And I was kind of in shock and didn't know what to do. And thinking about going to work at a motion picture company out in California, I needed some time to get my head together. And I took what I thought would be just a temporary job at Hauschka. And uh, I stayed there for a very long time, and I loved it. Wow. What a journey. Um, you had, I guess, several things in mind in college, and then you wind up in this this part-time job. Was was theater and entertainment an interest of yours in, in high school or earlier? How did you come up with this with this particular job? Uh, you know, I, I liked theater. Uh, I wasn't really a crazy fan of it. Uh, when I did do the marketing for it, I always kind of thought a little bit outside the box and uh, came up with an idea in the 70s to computerize ticketing. And mm. I hooked up with a guy, and together we designed the automated box office system for Broadway. So the automated tickets that you get today started with what I created back uh, many years ago. And now all the live theater around the country is kind of based on that ticketing. And that's what was really gave me the ability to think about changing my jobs. I had a little nest they built up and could do what I mm. wanted to do in my life. And I'm, as I said, everything really worked out very, very well for me and I hope for the people I worked with. 
Yeah, what an interesting uh, way to do that. And I guess for context for the times, people either would have had to go to a box office or make a phone call and I suppose wait on hold in order to buy tickets. And then uh, this is more of an automated system where people are able to do push buttons or how did that how did that system work? Well, if you buy a ticket now for a concert or for a live show, it's a real computerized automated system that goes through technology. Before mm-hmm. that, uh, there was a company called Ticketron, and mm-hmm. there was a company called Ticketmaster that kind of convinced people it was a computerized system, but it really wasn't. And I happened to do the advertising for Ticketron and realized that they weren't really doing it the way I would have. And I offered to help them do it. They didn't want to do it. They said, you want to do it, do it yourself. And I did, and I sold the idea to the Schubert Organization. And uh, that changed history. Yeah, I should say so. I mean, we uh, we take it for granted, and whether we love or 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 don't love the the automated systems, and now the things on our computer and Ticketmaster. I'm sure we could go on a long discussion about that, but it starts somewhere, and it's very interesting to to know that you had uh, a part in that. Wow. Yes, and uh, we did change the way people go to the to their entertainment. Yeah, absolutely, and in some ways made it more accessible uh, for more people. And also had problems. It had problems? Oh, sure, and maybe that's another conversation we have someday, but uh, (laughs) it changed things. I mean, you see what happens with the scalping of the tickets and the prices and the fees that go in. That was never supposed to be part of it. Yeah, that is definitely a separate conversation, but um, the best of intentions, I'm sure, to make sure that people had an opportunity to get tickets and like many other things, it becomes something else. But but working at this at this part time job and then and then obviously taking on more responsibility, like you said, these accounts that that other uh, employees didn't want. Uh, was there a moment or, or a time frame where you thought, no, I'm, I'm actually kind of good at this. I've got a talent for it. This is, this is something I can, I can spend some time on. Yes. Uh, I was amazed that in some ways I was better at it than the people who had spent their lives in it because I wasn't that hooked into it. And uh, I never wanted to be the star on a Broadway stage or write my own play. But those people needed somebody to help them market it and sell. And mm-hmm. I was, I realized with the New York Philharmonic that uh, the typography in an ad had to be a certain size or their older audience couldn't read the ads. And little right. things like that helped me change what they would do and bring up their uh, yearly subscriptions. Uh, with the Broadway theater, we realized that there were other audiences besides the uh, Long Islanders who would come in once a year to see a play, and we realized there was minority audiences, women uh, were not the only people who went to the theater. There were shows that men would like. And uh, I just looked at it different. I realized that I did it different than others, and the clients realized that too, and that's where, you know, I hit it in my way. I think I hit gold. And when I went to Hofstra, it was the same thing. Uh, Dr. Schuert, President Schuert, said, I like the way you think. Why don't you just try and run with it? And uh, we made a big difference. Uh, We changed the way people thought about higher education. 
but the priority was to change the way people thought about Hofstra. Hofstra was the largest college in America after World War II because the GIs were going back there and getting their degrees on the GI Bill. And uh, it was a good school, but uh, the image of it was it was a convenient place for people to make a stop after they were in the Army. And uh, that image was always that we were a local college. Uh, mm -hmm. We had a beautiful campus. We had great programs. We had a terrific liberal arts space, a very good faculty, and the price was right. So we went about convincing American students that this is the place they wanted to be. We also realized that it was the beginning of understanding that parents had a lot to do with where the students went. And so we, in our marketing, didn't only advertise to the students, but we advertised to the parents too. Um, it worked. It really did. It worked very, very well. Um, I, I guess about the time that you came on board in the mid 1980s, there was there had been a slow shift, I think, in the American way of thinking about higher education. But I think during that time period, the numbers of people applying and trying to get into college was increasing. And so it's interesting that Hofstra was trying to, uh, I don't necessarily change their brand, but their image or the perception of the public of the university and trying to grow along with the public's idea of higher education. Does that sound right? Or is that yes, uh, the and, timing a little bit different? What we realized is a primary market with the students who were already there, the ones who were going to go. So if mm. uh, Brian came to Hofstra as a freshman and went home on his first Thanksgiving and told everybody around the table what a great school it was, how wonderful it is, and how it's as good as any place else in America, that's great marketing because that mm. makes their parents proud. It gets their teachers from high school to say, hey, Brian thinks it's a good school. And Brian now feels good about his Hofstra degree. That wasn't always the way it was. Uh, when I came in, I realized that uh, Hofstra alumni, some of them now who are very involved with the school, some people who became board members, were kind of not embarrassed that they had a Hofstra degree, but they wondered why, uh, you know, they didn't go to Columbia. And then a few mm -hmm. years later, Columbia was saying that we were stealing students from them because our image was better than what was a premier Ivy League school. So marketing image is very, very important. And, uh, you know, you, you want to go to a good restaurant, but it's really nice when that restaurant has a great review and everybody's talking about it. And you can say, I've been there. In fact, I like the place a lot. And that mm -hmm. was kind of our philosophy. I used my ideas of how we sold entertainment uh, to make make it the way we sold higher education. Mm. Um, I, I was in high school in uh, the mid-1980s, and I grew up in Nassau County, and there was always a perception that Hofstra was a good school, but mostly a commuter school. And by the time I entered the university in the fall of 1990, I think the perception, generally speaking from, from what I understood, was a little bit different that Hofstra was a destination and it was becoming a more right. uh, important 
academic institution. And I suppose we'll talk about some of the things that Hofstra did uh, in the 1990s and beyond to, to burnish that image. But uh, that's a that's a calculated decision on your part and President Stewart and I guess the board to make to, to raise the esteem of the university. Were there particular yeah. things that you had in mind at the time to do that? Ways to do yes. that? Uh, you know, marketing tools, we started using advertising, which uh, a lot of people didn't use advertising as a marketing vehicle for colleges. We kind of invented mm. the category. So the New York Times loved us because once we started to do it, other people did. But we also did a lot of radio advertising that wasn't just, hey, it's time to register, come, you know, to, that everybody was doing those registration ads or, you know, there's a summer program. What we did is we wanted people to know how good Hofstra was. And the only way to tell them was in 60 seconds on the radio. We told them how many programs we had. We told them how many awards we had. We told them what our ranking was in U.S. News and World Report. And I even got a call from U.S. News World Report saying to me, how can you say Hofstra is so good? And we would be able to go back and say, well, you'd say it. We're just telling them what you say. And uh, our radio campaigns for a number of years were the number one recognized radio campaign in the New York metro market. And we didn't only go to New York. We would target a market like uh, Boston. And mm -hmm. in Boston, we didn't really have a lot of students when I got there. Uh, a few years later, there were schools in Boston, high schools in Boston, which send 20 or 30 students to Hofstra every year. And that adds up to a lot of students. And then we started looking at other areas around the country. Mm. It, it, it is interesting. Now that you say that, I think, well, yeah, about the time I was there, late 90s, early 2000s, there were a lot of New Englanders uh, people coming from Rhode Island, from Massachusetts, from New Hampshire, yeah. uh, down to Hofstra. And, it, and you know, I wouldn't have understood why at the time that there perhaps were recruiters, but I guess that was a, a dedicated marketing idea to that particular market. And I guess in terms of the commercials, if you could tell us, like, were they straightforward narrative reads? Were there jingles? Were there songs? What what was the the, the, the language of the commercial itself you were well, using? Well, we on radio? did. And again, Dr. Shewitt uh, was very good and very. Dr. Shewitt never cared about being the star of the, the university. He cared about getting the place going, making it right. And I came up with an idea to take our head of admissions. Uh, at the time, a few years after I got there, she joined us, Mary Beth Carey. And we mm -hmm. kind of made her a star. And she really, uh, she had a good voice. She sounded almost like a movie star on the radio. And uh, we brought her to the studio and we would do commercials that told people about the university. We would tell people in a radio commercial about what we do at WRHU, or we would tell them about what the theater program does, or we would talk about how a professor won a Pulitzer Prize. And other people started paying attention. And we noticed early on that the first people who paid attention were other college presidents who would mm -hmm. call me and say, could you come? I was off the jobs in other places just because they couldn't figure out how to market 
as well as a college like Hofstra was doing. So uh, it was an exciting time for me. And I'm glad mm-hmm. I stopped there in, in my career to spend a few years with the students. What got me to consider staying at Hofstra, because I really, I never told them I was coming there just to stay for a few months. I had every intention of moving out to California. But uh, when I got there, a few student groups asked me to get involved right away. One was a sorority, and uh, the sorority was Hofstra's oldest sorority, Alpha Theta Beta, and I became their advisor. I fell in love with them. It, it was just so rewarding. I was asked to be an ROTC advisor. I worked on the new voice as their advisor for a while. And I even, you know, <laughs> what was a little bit challenging was to be the advisor for nonsense, uh, the human <laughs> magazine. But what was really great, the secret ingredient was I had a boss who would let his ego not get out of control and say, do it. We were the first college in America to hook up as a partner with MTV. And when MTV was starting, that was a really big thing. And, uh, you know, I tried to work out an arrangement with um, Madison Square Garden and Cablevision. And uh, we had to work around. The faculty really didn't understand. You know, the difference in a university or an academic situation is if you're a professor, you get to a point where you're guaranteed a job for life. And I'm not sure if that's really the greatest way to do it, in my own opinion. And again, I didn't mm-hmm. stay in academic, uh, in an academic career, so you know maybe it would be different if I was a professor. But uh, my priority was always get those students out there so they get the best possible job and career and their life goes well. And that's what they're paying for. And that's what makes the college, in my mind, successful. Uh, so luckily, Dr. Shewitt let me do it. And we did some great stuff. When we would do our conferences, uh, the presidential conferences especially, mm-hmm. uh, I went to C-SPAN. They had never done anything like this before. And I said, why don't you come in and record and broadcast it? And they broadcasted all of our conferences gavel to gavel from the opening session uh, when we did the Nixon conference, every event, even though there were three going on at the same time, had a crew from C-SPAN. And those things are still in their archives and they're still either found on uh, C-SPAN or on YouTube, Mm -hmm. Uh, which can be embarrassing for me because I've lost a lot of weight. I was much heavier than that. And I didn't I didn't know the business. So uh, if, you, if you get a chance, there's a conference on uh, humor in the presidents, for the presidency for uh, on the Gerald Ford conference. And mm-hmm. the last minute, uh, somebody didn't show up and I had to sit in on the panel and moderate it. And I had to introduce somebody from Bryn Mawr, the college Bryn Mawr. I had never heard the word Bryn Mawr before. So, oh, no. you know, so I get up there and I say, oh, from Bride Mare or whatever, everybody laughs. And I turned it around and I said, well, you know, this is the human conference, guys. Cheer up. And uh, <laughs> it went okay. But uh, 
we did well and we made a difference and uh, built relationships. So uh, anyway, this is your your conversation. Ask me any questions you want, especially oh. let's talk about yeah. RHU. Well, I, I, I'm happy to do so, but but I, you gave me a little bit of, of background before we started. But as as most of these conversations go, I have so many questions as we go on. And, and you mentioned the name Mary Beth Carey, and I instantly had a flashback. I said, oh, yeah, I remember those exactly. Uh, that was so interesting. But I guess in it, my question here is that in talking to C-SPAN and talking to MTV, the people that you spoke to, at the time, did they know anything about Hofstra University? Was there a reputation or was it just who is this college calling up? Or was there a, a sense that this was a, a, an important place of learning that they should get hooked up with? Right. I try to instill in the students I work with and I still mentor people. It's up to you to tell the world who you are. And when I first called C-SPAN or the London Times or the Tokyo newspapers or CNN, they didn't know who the heck we were. Mm-hmm. But if you're on the phone, you're a salesman, and you convince them that this is, give us a shot. And uh, I happened to start at Hofstra right around the time News 12 was going on the air. And we developed a partnership with News 12. I'm still one of my best friends is Pat Dolan, who left Cablevision, and now he's the publisher of Newsday. I can't tell you how many people Pat helped me start their careers with. We had tried to do something great with... uh, News 12 and Cablevision, and I convinced Pat that we could do some stuff beyond what anybody else had done before. And we could have done more, but people like, you know, Andrew Smirts. Andrew, oh, sure. we got him a part-time job working, writing news for uh, Cablevision and News 12. So he would write the news stories. That's how he did it as a student. And there's a woman by the name of Stacy Sweet, who now does a lot of hosting on uh, PBS. And she did the same thing. Mm-hmm. And there are others, many others. So uh, that's, that's where I think we made a difference. So let's, let's talk about some of that connection with the radio station. When you came to Hofstra, were you aware there was a radio station? Were you aware of what was happening in uh, then what was the communications department? Before I came to Hofstra, Years after I started my first job, I started my own ad agency. And we did that's when we did the ticketing for the Schubert's. So I had an office mm-hmm. in New York. In Washington, I handled the Kennedy Center. And I had an office in uh, Boston and Los Angeles. It was great. It was wonderful. And uh, when I came to Hofstra, some of my clients had gone beyond the regular Broadway in entertainment. Uh, I, I worked in great clients with that, but I also worked in a radio station, WBLS, which I don't know if you're familiar with BLS, mm-hmm, inner mm-hmm. city broadcasting, uh, kind of discovered disco music. And mm-hmm. uh, they owned a few radio stations. The biggest, at the time, it was the biggest radio station in America. And the smallest radio station group in America was Pacifica, WBAI. They were my client mm-hmm. too. So I really got to know, I knew nothing about radio before that, except I would buy time for my clients on it. And I became partners with the people at uh, 
WBOS and the people at Pacifica. So uh, I learned about the FCC. I learned about what the requirements were. And I knew also what the ratings were and where WRHU fit in that ratings and how RHU mm. had changed its call letters. And, you know, and when I came to Hofstra, uh, Jeff Krause was the general manager of the station. And Jeff was a great guy. He, but he was an old radio guy. He was like a, a drill sergeant in the army. He would mm. put together the way the radio station should be. Uh, you had the community uh, programming, the Irish shows, the Italian shows, those. And to him, that was as important as anything else. And he was, in a way, a non-academic. He was teaching the students who worked there. Did you work with Jeff at all? I did. I was uh, program director uh, the year that Jeff passed. Okay, so, so I got to know him a little bit, but not as much as I would have liked. So he worked a different way than when Bruce Avery came in. Mm-hmm. And when RHU, uh, it, it was very different. The TV department, the communications department, RHU was kind of part of that. Uh, people, again, I said, you know, when you're a professor, when you get to a certain point, you're guaranteed a job for the rest of your life. And sometimes mm. that means that what you did 30 years ago is what you're still teaching now. And I think that was a little bit in the communications department, uh, mostly in television. In radio, though, it was still run like, like a radio station that was maybe 20 years earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the razor blades and the tape and cutting the tapes together and that, you know, and it's good to do that. But uh, to go out and promote it, it was almost like they didn't want a spotlight on some of the programs or whether it was administration in the department or some of the professors because too many people would kind of notice what they're doing and say, why don't you do it this way? So, Mm -hmm. uh, we worked around that a little bit, but uh, I felt that Jeff, uh, he worked with Sue Zizzer at the time. They, they, make, they, will, they had created a radio station that was a traditional radio station that would teach the people who worked there uh, how traditional radio worked, in my opinion. And yep. Uh, yep. what I was trying to do was to put up partnerships with MSG Network uh, to maybe look at if you're doing radio, could you also do television? Could you do different kind of programming? Uh, and you know, again, my job was to go out and market it and also to kind of keep the administration out of the comm department to not say, hey, guys, you can't do that. So mm-hmm. uh, if you talk to Eric, to Andrew or and uh, Doug Ocon, who did, uh, were you involved with the Good Morning Hostra show at all? Uh, I, I remember that, and I remember when, well, I wasn't there when Doug and, and Andrew were working on it, but uh, I know that it was definitely part of the idea of the university. Andrew's talked about this. Jason Levy talked about it, that 
Good Morning Hofstra was meant to be sort of a, a public relations extension of the university by students and, and to, to help out uh, expand the message of the university into the community. And it was a lot of personal pressure for me because I really felt that the students doing it should be allowed to do what they wanted to do, even if it was controversial, mm -hmm. even if it was something that people thought it was, this was, I guess, maybe the time, the beginning of like a Howard Stern and stuff, but radio has to be exciting, I felt. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, so part of it would be the first phone call would come to me from somebody saying, how, how do you let them do that? I thought, first of all, they don't report to me. And secondly, see what it's going to be okay. And uh, they would say things or they would, you know, some people would take it personal. And I finally said to the board and to the president, you know, what's proving is that a lot of people listen to the radio station more than we thought. So uh, I really think that it helped. Could we have done more? Absolutely. But I, I think when we got, look how successful you folks are. Look how, Jason worked with me one day, uh, right before they were going to take down the Berlin Wall. And mm -hmm. Russia was going to do a broadcast with President Reagan. And politics being in the middle of it all, Reagan decided, I'm not doing that. I'm going to, you know, I don't want to get involved with these. And we had campus closest to Glen Cove. Glen Cove has the Russian embassy. And uh, you ever want to meet some interesting people? I don't know if they're still there, but they were <laughs> an interesting group. And we offered to let them do the broadcast from RHU. And we spent the day there. It might have been a weekend. I forget what it was. But Jason was with me that day. And uh, it was a very, President Schuett actually came into the studio and gave a greeting from America to Voice of America and to all uh, the people in Russia. It was amazing. You know, and I think for people like Jason, what a great experience that is. Absolutely. So we, and, and Jason and I are now both high school social studies teachers, and we both tell stories about the Cold War and what it was like. It's hard to explain to kids in 2023 and 2024 what the Cold War was like, but this was this was a, a momentous occasion, and I was always interested in how that uh, arrangement came together. So is, is, I guess, like you're saying something about the Soviet embassy was in Glen Cove. Did you have contacts there? The how did that all start? Yeah. I, I knew they were close by. Uh, we were the campus that when the TV crew wanted to come out or they wanted to do an article, it looked like a real campus. There are not many real-looking campuses in the New York area. You have to go mm -hmm. to New Jersey. So Fordham didn't have a really good-looking campus. NYU didn't. None of the city colleges did. Columbia uh, was different. And you're not even... A lot of colleges didn't like crews there, uh, news crews, because they thought they would say something bad. It's like what happened with all these uh, demonstrations right now. Uh, mm -hmm. If you tell people you can't demonstrate, they're going to go crazy. 
And uh, so they ignored all those other places. And groups like MTV or CNN would come out to do Hofstra. I can't tell you how many times we had uh, some of the important national and even international uh, crews on our campus. It was great. We did uh, the morning, uh, NBC's morning show with Willard Scott. And we, you know, all morning they broadcasted from the Hofstra campus. And we did that on the weekends, maybe three or four times a year. So the Today Show, the Sunday Today Show, would be broadcast from Hofstra. That's great publicity for us. You can't buy that publicity. Hmm. If if I could double back for a second to uh, what you were saying about, uh, I guess, running somewhat interference if someone on the board or uh, a professor called up to complain about something uh, happening at the radio station, I, I guess, like you said, their first instinct was to call you. And then I guess what kind of conversation would you have with, with Jeff Krause when he was there? Because Jeff was known to be a little bit tough at times, but also you know, an ardent defender of the station. Yeah. Well, that's, I was trying to be nice about it, but yeah, I mean, you had to deal with the man and, and complaints about, about the station he was running. What was it like working with Jeff? Well, it was different than Bruce. Bruce would just not listen, which caused a lot of (laughs) friction. Uh, And I don't think Bruce ever made the A-list in the administration's law, but uh, Jeff, but Dr. Schrute realizes he wasn't going to kick, uh, Jeff out. He really couldn't. It would have been politically not right. So I became the buffer. And Mm. the people who would call me when they had a problem could be either an administrator or could even be somebody who Jeff might have reported to. And they'd say, can you go over there and, you know, ease it, take care of it. And it usually worked very well. Uh, We had some trustees who were amazing, really amazing people. Frank Zarb, uh, was just a wonderfully great guy. Uh, Henry Kissinger's brother, Walter Kissinger, I don't know if you knew it, he was up until uh, fairly recently, he was a board member of Hofstra. Walter Kissinger was fantastic. A guy named Bob Brockway, who had been a senior person at CBS and actually started HBO. He was, and they would call me and say, hey, I hear this, do you think you can, you know, what can we do to make it better? Mm. And, you know, and Dr. Seward was like, take care of it. So one time uh, I got a call from MTV and they said, uh, we're going to do a show called The Big the Spring Break and we'd like to invite some hospital students to Florida to do it. And uh, Dr. I said, let me just check. And Dr. Shewitt said, well, you know, some things you have to do without telling me, you know. (laughs) And they did it. And when the show started, the first thing you see is somebody in a Hofstra Pride T-shirt jumping into a swimming pool. And, of course, I got phone calls. Alumni called. But it was great. I mean, it began an association that, showed Hofstra as a national school, not a local college. And right. you have to sometimes put up with it. You know, I I think 
My own opinion is these college presidents who ask somebody to write a statement for them when there's something like a war going on or uh, some kind of social issue, and they don't think it out. They're making a big, big mistake. And, uh, you know, you've seen two college presidents have been fired over something that's, you know, totally political. Uh, with the right advisors, they could have done so much better. And that's what I felt is that I tried to be an advisor to understand you can't lie to the media, you can't lie to the students, you can't lie to the parents. If there's a problem at school, you have to admit it. And if there's something you're doing great, tell everybody about it so they can share the good news. Hmm. Um, it, as you were telling those stories, I, I'm, I'm thinking, yes, I can see some of the professors or trustees wanting to be protective of the university and its brand and its integrity. And at the same time, here's this spring break event or whatever it might be that there's a kid in a Hofstra t-shirt or whatever it is getting that, that brand out there. It's a delicate balance to, to make that work and not have the, the negative repercussions uh, like you say, but um, right. I, I want to I want to move on to after after Jeff passed and is in doing these interviews, it's become clear that Jeff had an idea of expanding the radio station and the move uh, to what was then the Dempster Annex. But he he passed away before he could see that. And Bruce Avery yeah. came on board. So here's a brand new radio station facility that's been added on and all the bells and whistles, so on and so forth. How did, how did you and how did the university look at the radio station after the move into the new facility? What was going on is public relations. It was never a major, you know, uh, I didn't major in public relations. I was a psychology major. When I taught public relations at Hofstra, not, none of those students were uh, PR. Many of them were at uh, communications majors. And uh, all of a sudden, it became evident that a college could make a lot of money on communications. People like hanging out in the studio. They like, and, you know, maybe there weren't as many jobs that there could have been. My feeling was they should have hooked up with News 12 and they should have hooked up with MSG. So the students working there would have honest to real good jobs when they graduate. A number of them did. A number of them went on to do some great stuff. But uh, when you went to college, you probably didn't think you were going to be a high school teacher. And if you had been working at MSG and offered a job that was $100,000 after you graduated, you probably would have moved in that career, but or at least had the options to do it. Uh, communications was becoming very, very profitable. It didn't cost as much as a, if you have a physics program, it's expensive. You have a, uh, Hofstra has a similar program to RHU, but it's very different. Uh, the hearing, you know, uh, programs that deal with hearing and that kind of audio are very expensive to run because you have to have a certain kind of faculty and experience and you know, you don't make money on it. You make mm. a lot of money on a fancy TV studio. And uh, I think that's what Hofstra looked at. Is This is kind of a shiny, nice thing. Let's see what we can do with it. Uh, mm. But, you know, and again, my opinion, I, I did not stay 
in that university. I went to another college for a few years after that. But higher education, I still get asked to do consulting uh, for colleges. A lot of people who I work with doing it don't agree with my philosophy. But I, I believe that uh, things should be run a little differently. So what, what, what do you mean by that? People don't agree with your philosophy. What was the difference? My philosophy is that the students are customers, not the mm. parents, not the high school that they came from. That college, higher education is a very expensive uh, part of a person's life, maybe too expensive. And maybe mm. uh, a lot of the focus is on paying an administration or athletics or other programs that when you go to college, you want to get a job. You want to have your life set. You need some advice. You need mentors. And I don't really see where in the last uh, decade or so that's where it's going. Uh, mm. And again, you know, you see it as a high school uh, teacher. I can't tell you how many people beg me uh, to help them get into a certain college, and then they're going to mm -hmm. be in debt for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely talk to a lot of students about the the, the costs involved, and you know yourself and and so many other people. You you start off with one idea in college, and you wind up going in a different direction. I think I think at least half the conversations I've had as part of this this interview series are, well, I started off as a computer science major and I became a radio major or whatever it might be yeah. that you have a chance to experiment and try things out. Um, and I think that that's why internships so important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as, as the radio station moved into the new building and Bruce Avery was on board, um, there were opportunities I think that didn't necessarily exist before, uh, for getting publicity. The, the internet was, uh, a, a new and growing thing in the mid nineties and the late nineties. Were there things that the university was trying to do to, to promote the, the radio station and the communications department further during that time period? Or was it more of a continuation of what you were doing before? Uh, I don't know if the university appreciated technology. Uh, mm. I had, by mistake, grown up with it. Uh, we could have been the home of what uh, ultimately became Google, uh, but they didn't see it as where it was going. They didn't want to give up the old traditions. You know, the, mm. the New York Times is a great example of the media that looked and said, okay, technology is going to change. Let's see if we can get a jump on and do well. And they do well. But other newspapers, the Daily News, the Washington, you know, newspapers went out of business because they didn't want to give up printing it on paper. Right. Colleges were very slow in buying into the technology. And, you know, the internet has become such an important part of what's going on in university life, but because they didn't pay attention to it, there are a lot of these problems that go along with it because the people who really put it together are the people who were the outcasts that Steve Jobs and those people they weren't mm -hmm. they weren't going to school taking classes. 
they were learning it on themselves. And uh, I just think that if you look at you know what worked well for the communications department, uh, we brought in, I think we brought in CBS News Bureau and mm-hmm. they came in on campus. That was good. Could have been better. Uh, the faculty didn't work that closely with them. They, it's almost like they didn't like those interlopers there, but it would have been better if there was more of a partnership. In my opinion, mm. the best thing that happened to the communications department was a professor by the name of Ed Ingalls. Ed Ingalls mm-hmm. was a professional from broadcast news, and he came in and he helped. Another uh the journalism department was Bob Green, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, professor who came in and really helped a lot of people. Bob Green actually got fed up with Hofstra and went to Stony Brook. And uh, because, you know, sometimes faculty and administration let ego get in the way. And mm-hmm. it was, it could never be. As Dr. Schuett said, it was never about him. When he retired, he was gone. It's about this, it's about the institution and the people who are there. And the primary people who are there are not the faculty, it's the students. The only difference between you getting a degree at Hofstra or you getting a degree at Harvard is at Harvard, you're going to be sitting next to somebody who is special, very smart, in a different social class, thinks a little bit better. And that's where it's important. But you're going to read out of basically the same history book. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if Hofstra ever bought into that. I think if they had understood that and paid more attention into bringing in some of those better students, they would have done even better. Hmm. I mean, you learned when you said, how many years ago did you graduate? I graduated in 1994. So since then, I would assume that your memories, your connections, the strongest ones are with your classmates and people you went to school with. And you grew with, with the, Yeah. Yeah. With the radio station. That was, that was our, our home away from home. It was our little mm-hmm. family and, uh, more so than any classes that was the radio station was, uh, was home for, for so many of us. And we had that sort of, you, you kind of alluded to it, the, a little bit of an outsider mentality. And, uh, I, I think that was a thing that brought us together and I don't want to cast the university is the enemy, but a number Ooh. of stories, it's sort of like it was us against the university. And I don't know if that was a real thing or a perception, but um, I, I think it definitely brought some people into the station and, and, uh, and made a stronger connection uh, certainly. And, and we had a lot of talented people come through. So I think it was, uh, it was oh, a bonding yeah. moment, whether, whether it was real or not. And someone has suggested, or a few people have suggested that, that Jeff, May have Jeff Cross may have created this set of well, it's us against the university. Uh, you know, we have to do what we can just to create that sort of bonding ideal and and to and to bring in talent and and push people uh, to their best ability. And again, I don't know if that was a real thing or if it was uh, the perception yeah. he created. It was a but, perception that was put 
pushed by different groups. So, you know, one mm. faculty group might want to say, nobody else likes you, so that's what we have to do it our way. But uh, we tried to break that down because you should be able to think and, and understand that maybe you don't want to do history anymore. Maybe you do want to get into uh, being at the radio station. Or maybe you want to be in sports management. But they tend to hold on to the group and say, hey, those other people are different. That's what's going on in our whole country. We look at everybody who's not us as different. And I think uh, it's just it's human nature. But at the university, there was so much that we could have done. And we did. We really did. I mm. mean... Hofstra was not thought of as that local college down the block anymore. Right. Um, one of the things I, I recently spoke to Jason Levy, and he talked about working on a committee with you and some other people, sort of about a, a branding or rebranding of uh, the, the university. And he designed a bumper sticker for the radio station that, that we carried for yep. quite some time, as far as I know. Um what else was going into that idea of rebranding the universe? I know we've talked about it a little bit, but the, well, the, the, the big picture idea point. of doing that. Yeah. What happens is any company, the principal of your school, uh, we think we know what's right, what's wrong with our group or our institution. And Hofstra was like everybody else. We knew that uh, this is what students wanted. And I'm a big fan of focus groups. Um, mm. What I, I don't care for is long research projects that go on for years and years, and then you have to figure out where it's going. I think a bunch of short focus groups, you really get a lot of answers out of it. So I convinced the president to let me try to do that. And we brought some people in, because they were trying to decide, should we do more programs in engineering? Should we put our resources into making the football team better? Do we need with sports? And the focus groups were so amazing. If you've been on the Hofstra campus, I think one of the most successful changes we made was the cafeteria. We realized that students wanted pizza. And we went to Mario Sabaro, who owns Sabaro's, and mm -hmm convinced him to give us a million dollars to let him put a pizza place in the uh, student center and pay rent. And that, and if you look at the cafeteria, instead of having one place where you walk through, you had food stations. And before you knew it, other colleges around the country were copying us. That meant more to students than whether I'm majoring in history or not. Hmm. You want to have fun. You want to feed yourself. And, you know, we thought it was so important to have a library with a million volumes in it until we realized that the Internet would be the place to put those volumes. You don't need that 11-story building. Mm. You know, but if you do have an 11-story building, put a coffee shop in it. And the, the librarians at the beginning said, you can't put coffee in a library. You know, people are going to spill something on a book. And we said, but there's a million of them. They have other books. <laughs> and what happened then is that all of a sudden, 
uh, Barnes and Nobles, the bookstore started putting Starbucks in. We had gone to them first, and we, I, it's just thinking outside the box, but not us doing the thinking. It's letting your customers tell you what they want. Hmm. And, and I think that's what we did. Uh, uh, that, that, that made me think of one of the, the, the things that was very useful for the radio station for a long time, but a lot of students, whether they worked at the station or were uh, residents or commuters, is the classical music during the day. And then know that was a particular favorite of President Stewart, and that was part right. of the the condition of some of the bu- budgeting that there would be classical music on during the day uh, outside of Hofstra Hall that people could listen to. And a lot of students were, uh, I don't know, turned off by that or just thought, well, the radio station isn't for me. And eventually that did change over time uh, in, into the 2000s. There were a number of students who campaigned and worked with Bruce and and the university to change things. But for a long time, that was, that was part of president Stewart's vision for the station. And it was a thing that, that uh, we had to work with. What do you remember about uh, station feedback or working with president Stewart on that? So I can tell you the secret on how that changed. Mm. So he really felt, first of all, having the classical music on there to him was he wouldn't be getting phone calls in the middle of the day from somebody reacting to a good morning Hofstra kind of a show. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether people listen to it or not, they could, you know, he thought it was okay because he always could have just piped classical music around the campus if that's what he wanted, but he right. did. One time, it was an event that we were having in the student center, and he decided to bring in some music and invite the students and feed them. He said, if we feed them, they're going to come. So hot dogs and sodas, whatever the heck it was. And we go there, and he said to me, see, look at this. We have the students here. And the music that he brought in, uh, there were some people involved with the college in the administration who did a barbershop quartet. So the music he brought in was a barbershop quartet, right? Mm-hmm, and he's mm-hmm. saying, that's so I'm looking, and I'm saying, gee, you know, even with the barbershop quartet, you're getting students here. And he thought they were coming to listen to the barbershop quartet. And then finally, I noticed what was going on. And I said to him, Jim, come over here. I said, look at those kids over there. They all had headphones on. They were listening to their iPads. <laughs> so he said that you're right and that got him to start checking they're not into this stuff you don't have to like it they're the customer and mm. then he started to, to look at could we change it mm. it's, a, it's, it's interesting to, to, to hear uh, that side of the conversation because uh, myself and, and many other students wondered well, you know, why do we have to do this? And 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 we've we've gone over this this dozens of times. But I appreciate the the uh, the look at the other side of the conversation. Um, that's great. We you've shared so many wonderful stories about your experience at Hofstra University and the radio station. Is there any one thing that stands out in your mind as as your proudest accomplishment or the biggest event 
that happened during your time? Well, I mean, there are many things that, you know, being there was like being in another planet of great stuff. Uh, I met so many important people. Uh, I had lunch one-on-one with Justice Scalia. I uh, spent a day with, I spent two days with Jimmy Carter. You know, all that stuff was wonderful. But I think Mm. my biggest accomplishment continues. It's watching the success of the Hofstra students. You know, did we have failures? Absolutely. Did we have emergencies that we had to deal with? Oh, my God. There were things that I had a special phone next to my bed. And I lived in Huntington. And if there was an emergency on campus, I could be showered and into campus in less than a half hour. And I would do that sometimes at 3 o'clock in the morning when there was some kind of a problem. Uh, But my feeling was addressing those problems were probably my biggest accomplishment because it saved so many dire problems. Uh, Being with the students, watching them grow, it's just been, I think, the greatest thing in the world for me. And now, you know, as their kids are getting ready to go to college, you know, I think for some of them, we've helped make it a little bit better. And I do think that we did change the attitude, not only to Hofstra, but some other places too. You know, uh, Dr. Shewitt got a phone call one day from the president of another university saying that he wished that he had what Hofstra had. Mm. And it was that sense of pride in how everybody was working together. When I first came to Hofstra, the faculty and the staff would have strikes. And, mm-hmm. you know, I said, wait a minute. You know, I had learned from the people at the Broadway Theater. Broadway Theater's people said, let's figure out how we don't have to do these strikes anymore. And we did that. And Hofstra listened. Uh, I think the board appreciated it, and uh, it went on. Hofstra became a different place. You know, uh, there were some board members that after I left, I, you know, I don't know if I would have thought that Madoff would have been a good board member. You know, I, you know, I don't know why they asked him or, or Jerry Kushner's dad. You know, but just because they're involved with the college doesn't mean you need them on telling you what to do. Right. You know, uh, but I do think that uh, there's still some great, great people there and have done some terrific things. And my little part in working with students like Jason or Andrew or some of the others who've just gone on to just amaze me, uh, that, that's the best thing that could ever happen to me personally. And I'm glad that I was part of it, part of their lives to help them. Hmm. You know, having Jason's artwork used, uh, and I remember that day because the art department for the university, you know, the uh, artists who put all our ads together, uh, they reported to me. And it was so much more valuable to have a student do something that we put out there. Uh, that was great. And it's hmm. something that he can do with forever. But, I, you know, it was what the university is about. 
Yeah. It's, it was your place. It was his place. And it was up to us to make sure that the customers really got everything out of it that they could. Hmm. Um, I, I, I love the way that you express that. And I think it's so important. And I think from what I understand, you know, I'm, I'm not with the university anymore as a student or, or, uh, around it, but it seems like there's more of that mentality, especially with the radio station that, that what can the university do to advance the interests of, of the students and, and what can the radio station do and, and make those, those uh, connections for career and, and friendship and relationships. So um, thank you for, for being a part uh, of making that happen. And thank you so much for sharing your stories. This has been uh, a, a real pleasure. And um, oh, Brian, anytime I'm here for you and anybody else. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll get uh, some of the other guys on and some of the other women on. We'll all do it together. We'll do our own focus group. Let's let's make it happen. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mike. Okay, this great. has been great. Thank you. Happy New Year.